As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. I lent, I think, 5,000 an acre, and then I sold it for about 1,000 an acre years later. Welcome, my friend, to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. And before we get into the show in today's episode, which I know you'll get a lot of value from because we're, we stay out of all the fluffy stuff and we get straight into the good stuff of real estate investing advice, I want to give a quick shout out to today's sponsor, and that's Patch of Land. Uh, they are making this show possible, and they're making tons of flipping projects possible all across the country. If you don't know about Patch of Land, then they are the number one company to go to for uh, projects that you're flipping uh, because they have all the money available right now. Um, once you get approved for your your deal and yourself as a sponsor or a borrower, um, you're going to be funded by them. And then they go raise the money through their crowdfunding platform. So you don't have to worry about all that. They'll take care of the, the money and the funding for you. You just have to worry about making sure your project's, project's a success. Uh, they've got something really cool for you. So um, if you are just learning about crowdfunding, uh, they've come up with a guide. It's called the Top 10 Crowdfunding Questions Guide. And they're all the, the questions that you might be asking yourself. And they're all the answers. They don't leave you hanging. They've got answers too. All the answers to those, those 10 crowdfunding questions. So you can go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get that guide. Uh, and if you think you know everything about crowdfunding, i check this guide out just in case because there are some interesting aspects that you'll learn. So go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get that guide. Hi, best ever listeners. Welcome to another episode of the best real estate investing advice ever show. If you don't know about the show, then let me quickly tell you. We get into the good stuff on real estate investing. We cut out all of the fluff. We get straight to the stuff that will help you move your real estate business forward. And we get our guests to tell us what their best real estate investing advice ever is. 
Uh, so far, I've, I've done over probably 300, 320, 30, 40 episodes. You know better than I do because you know what episode this is. I'm not quite sure. But a lot of episodes, a lot of best ever guests. And from Robert Kiyosaki to Barbara Corcoran to Jay Papazan and, and many others. And today, I'm so happy and pleased to be with Jeff Ball. How you doing, Jeff? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Joe. Hey, great to have you on the show. And it's Jeff. It's not Jeffrey, because the interesting thing about Jeffrey is that nobody calls him Jeffrey except for his mom or older sister. Uh, He goes by Jeff. Is that right? You got it. You got it. And is that only when you're in trouble? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. (laughs) I don't get in trouble very much. Oh, okay. All right. Well, Jeff's been busy uh, not getting into trouble because he's been focused on so much real estate investing. He started in private money in 2003. He's also actively flipping homes. I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation talking about the two paths and how they've overlapped and why he's chosen to get into those areas. He's a mortgage loan originator at Applewood Funding Incorporated based in Scottsdale, Arizona. He specializes and only does hard money loans. And he's been real estate investing. He's had his own real estate investing company and flipping homes since 2004. And he, like I said, he's done over 200 flips um, and he's been in private money since 2003. So with that being said, Jeff, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure, sure. So my background, depending on how far you, you want to take, and I, I went to the University of Arizona, specialized in business, got into private lending in 2003, have done all the facets of private lending for your consumer, owner-occupied residential purchase refinance to your larger multifamily and commercial assets. Um, did that all through the 2000s. Over the past few years, we've been focusing primarily on your single-family residences, condo, townhome type product. We do the full spectrum, though. I'm still doing your consumer product, being the owner-occupied, along with your investment. And we are starting to finally see a little bit of the horizon of, of good, solid commercial deals coming back onto our space. So, been pretty diverse there. And then from our real estate investment side, Flipping single-family homes, you know, we've, we've definitely modeled our business off of staying up with the times where we, when the bust happened, we did a lot of wholesaling and we did a lot of buy and holding. And now as the market is more and more normalizing, we really are, and we always have, but primarily we focus from just a portion of our business being buy, fix it, and flip it retail to just about everything we do right now, we're buying and flipping to the retail buyer. Sounds like you started out with the the lending background, and then did it evolve into actively flipping? It did. So the, the the way I got into real estate investing on a larger scale was the group that I worked for for many years as a private lender. I I ran the sales department, so we would go to the mortgage broker and banker community, real estate commercial banker and developer community, get their hard money loan business. When two thousand eight hit. As everybody knows, the loan business really came to a halt, whether it was A paper subprime or hard money. And my business then and the company I worked for transitioned from doing basically in a sense a debt fund to an equity fund, being instead of lending money on real estate, they started to buy real estate. My job became instead of looking for loans, it was looking for houses, fixing houses up, and they had a buy and hold model. When that company went under in the mortgage meltdown, uh, I just started doing it on my own and continuing that process. And I went from doing, I did my first home to doing two homes to doing three homes to before you know it, you've, you've done hundreds. So what were you doing 
differently that allowed you to have success on the buy, fix, and flip model that the company you were working for that tried to pivot into that model wasn't doing? Well, I, I think that a couple things went into the space that, that really worked for me was I was able to create a system from creating the systems in regards to how I looked for deals, how I found deals, how I would then model the deal to make sure that the transaction was a was a real deal. I think people try to put a round peg in a square hole where they try to make a deal a deal if it's not. So I'm very realistic to what is a transaction and a deal to what is not, and I've modeled that. Then when I have my renovation side, really modeling and, and creating systematic where I've created a cookie cutter function where I do just about the same thing in every home. Uh, of course, there's nuances to every property, but we really try to cookie cutter the process. I have a really great contractor that works with me. And then on the liquidation side, being very realistic to what the costs are to sell a home. And I think that a lot of times people come under budget and then they come from the renovation standpoint, they also come under budget in regards to what their sales costs are going to be, realtor fees, concessions, warranty, normal clothing costs. And then of course, being real to what your actual sales price is going to be. If you take that overly optimistic model and you think you're going to be able to sell for X amount where the numbers really aren't there, but you may be able to squeak it or being really realistic to what your exit's going to be. You talk about the renovation and underestimating what the sales costs are. Generally speaking, what are all the itemized sales costs? Do you want no renovation side or just the sales cost? Both. Okay. So from a sales cost, it's basically 10% is what I always model. So I always model 5% for real estate fees. I pay my realtor that I work with a lot. I pay him 2% commission when I sell, but you're always going to, or you're normally going to have a buyer's agent where they're going to be 3%. And this, of course, is when you're selling it to a retail buyer. Then I always estimate that we're going to be looking at 3% sales concessions because it's pretty normal when you're dealing with the affordable home market that you're going to be giving seller concessions for an FHA home buyer. And majority of my buyers are FHA home buyers. I normally give a home warranty because they're normally asking for them. And then your normal title and escrow fees, title, escrow, um, prorations of, of taxes, and any other nuances that are in, in regards to a title company fee. So at the end of the day, it normally pencils out to about 10%. From a space of the single-family homes that I renovate, the single-family homes that I work within, you know, normally we're acquiring the homes between seventy to 90000 my normal renovations cost anywhere from eighteen to thirty thousand, and then our sales prices right now have been anywhere from one hundred and thirty to one hundred and fifty thousand. So at the end of the day, we model that we're looking for a net net profit after acquisition costs, renovation costs, and seller excuse me and closing costs of anywhere between fifteen to twenty five thousand net profit. And do you have a, a spreadsheet that you just simply plug in the cost for each of these items? I do. I do. I've modeled a spreadsheet where, for the most part, in the areas that I like to buy, I know those markets. And normally within five minutes, I can model that house on that house size and the floor plan because I know most of the floor plans in the areas that I like to buy. And usually without even seeing it, I can be pretty close, usually within 10% or so. And then once I see it, I know exactly where I'm going to be at. Have you looked at going... I I know you mentioned commercial earlier. Have you looked at any flips for commercial? You know, I really don't. And there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, I think one of the spectrums that the last 10 years has taught anybody who's really been in the business is nothing lasts forever. 
And commercial transactions are normally longer-term transactions than residential. And I always want to be in a position where I have manageability, being if the market were to change drastically, I have a product that I can manage through the tough times very well. And the affordable home market is that area where I feel comfortable, where if I'm into an asset for, let's say, after renovation, ninety dollars to $100,000, it's a product that I can rent out for anywhere from eight dollars to $900 a month, where it's not the exact return that I'm looking for, but it's better than nothing. I, mean, I don't want to be in a position where um, I have something that's not manageable. Basically, you have a cash flow backup plan. You got it. You got it. With multifamily, some would say that there would be a cash flow backup plan and it'd be less risky because you've got, say, a 10-unit building, 10 residents versus one resident. What are your thoughts on that? So, and, and that's a great point. You know, and I, I definitely come back to the fact of, you know, that higher potential for return, there's also a higher potential of risk and issues. Right. So I have done multifamily. And in my multifamily experience, you know, instead of dealing with one tenant at a time, you're dealing with as many doors as you have. There's things that can come about within those markets. Like, for example, you know, when you're dealing with here in the Phoenix market, normally when you have anything from a duplex to an eightplex um, and beyond that, but I, I haven't gone higher personally than an eightplex on one individual transaction, you know, you're going to deal with a single meter regarding water. Usually you can get it where you have where they do have individual meters for electric and gas. But that water meter, you may have a, a property that, you know, you're generating, let's say it's a fourplex and you get 500 a month per door, $2,000 in income. You could have a month where you could have a $900 water bill. I've had that before. So there's things that can come about in the multifamily world that you don't really deal with as much in the residential side. Other things that you deal with on the lower tier, and this can happen at any spectrum. But I've had bed bugs and a lot of the multifamily transactions that I acquired. And if you've ever dealt with that before, that's a, that's a pain to deal with and get rid of. Because if all the <laughs> tenants all the tenants aren't willing and, and ready to have you treat for it, then you could treat as much as you want, but they'll all go to the unit that wasn't treated. So, you know, there's a lot of things that go into a spectrum in multifamily. There is a greater potential for cash flow, but in my opinion, there's also a greater potential of, of the what-ifs to happen, so... I personally had both of those what ifs happen um, where <laughs> one of my properties that has a $70,000 water bill. Uh-huh. So we finally decided, hey, we've got to do something. So we're billing back residents through a rub program, resident utility bill back system. And then um, definitely had the bed bug thing on a property too. And that's no fun because you've got three treatments, usually three treatments of, of the same apartment spaced out, if it's occupied, spaced out over two weeks time frame. So, and yeah. the preparation of that is not a simple process for the resident, as you know. I mean, they've got to bring all of their clothing and boxes and furniture um, away from the wall because you spray the wall and they've got to package things up and throw stuff out. I mean, it's just a nightmare. It's a headache. Yeah, so I, I hear you. And, and the other thing you have too, which you've noticed in, you know, and I know you have a lot of multifamily assets is that market for multifamily units is very competitive. And that competition is where, you know, let's say you have those water bills. Well, sometimes it's very hard to raise those rents because of the competitive nature of multifamilies because a lot of these people can go next door and get a better deal now because water's included. So those are the issues that I've had. So, Yeah, and I, I think that's definitely 
can be the case depending on whatever market you're in, right? Because it's all about supply and demand. What do you think as a private or a hard money lender, what deals do you turn down? Deals that don't fit our model of business. So, you know, we're definitely still an old school hard money lender where, you know, we first look at the acquisition of the asset. We, though, from a standpoint of our underwriting, we do a pretty thorough underwriting and you know, we do a lot of the residential transactions. And with those residential transactions, we will still qualify income. So, you know, when I say what would we turn down, transactions that fit our model of business we're going to do as long as the LTV and the income of the borrower make sense. What is the LTV and the income requirement? We are 65% loan to value and the debt income ratio is no greater than a 43%. Can you give kind of a scenario for what the 65% means on a one deal and what the 43% means exactly? Sure. So make it simple. If you have a, have a home or a property that's worth $100,000, we're not going to lend more than 65000 against that $100,000 asset. And at debt ratio standpoint, if, for example, their income is $1,000 a month, then including their mortgage payment, taxes, insurance, and any other monthly liabilities that they have being credit cards, car payments, other things involved with their credit, we can't be more than 43% of that $1,000 income. So no more than the payments and everything can't total more than $430 if their income is 1000 Got it. Okay. Is that pretty standard? In the nature that we sit with them regarding that we will do your owner-occupied transactions, yes. And if it's not that case, what is the case and what's the standard? Well, it really is the, the niche dynamic. So, you know, there, of course, are, are private lenders out there that do more of your fix and flip investment properties. And a lot of them don't verify and qualify income, especially on the shorter term flip horizon, where we take the longer term approach. So we're doing that consumer owner occupied purchase refinance and or that longer term investor buy and hold model. And we're going to kind of look at them the same way. Jeff, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? The best advice that I ever received, and I I don't know if you can call it it exactly pertaining to real estate, was go with your gut. You know, you know what's real and what's not and what's right and what's wrong. And when you're dealing with real estate or any business, go with your gut about what you know is right. If it feels right, it's probably right. If it doesn't feel right, it's probably wrong. Have you gone against your gut? And, and can you give an example of that? I haven't gone against my gut in quite some years. I think that the spectrum that went against my gut was when I was back in my 20s and working for that, that large company and really trusting people, trusting the people that I had worked for in that, you know, kind of the naivety of when you're in your 20s and, and going into the real world of, you know, not realizing who people really are. Um, and when you put their, your trust into them and also your capital into them, and then when it, it doesn't come to fruition, it's, uh, it's a, a big lesson to learn, but you have to learn that lesson and move on. And nowadays, I, I definitely stick with my gut. And for people who are in their 20s or maybe just getting started in real estate, and they don't want to experience that same pain that, that you've experienced and I've experienced too, What would you recommend that they do whenever they're analyzing a deal or a partnership and they're they're trying to determine what the heck their gut's telling them to do? Sure. Trust but verify. You know, 
really know in regards to, especially people who are starting out where you're, if you're going to start out, you're going to be relying on information from different people and make sure that what they're saying is valid and also make sure that what they're saying is true in the sense, I think a lot of people in this spectrum of, of the world and a lot of spectrums, they always say absolute things such as, you know, the deal's a home run, you can't lose or, you know, this will never happen. Well, the reality is the worst you can think about can and does happen. So you have to prepare for that. And in everything you do, you have to have that secondary avenue. Just like I do, as I explained earlier in my real estate, if I can't flip it, I'm going to see how I can cash flow it. So you got to have that that mainstay of how you're going to get through the tough times because everybody can get through the good times. But how are you going to survive the tough times where nothing lasts forever and eventually the tough times will come? So just making sure that you're real to that dynamic that that exists in the world. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's a major red flag when people are speaking in absolutes. Major, major red flag. And That's right. I raise money and I always tell people there's no guarantee. And if, it, if anybody tells you there's a guarantee in real estate, you need to run the other way. There's no guarantee in any aspect of real estate. That's a great piece of advice. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's go. <laughs> All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Crowdfunding. You've heard about it. Now it's time for you to learn about it. Our best ever sponsor today, Patch of Land, they're the leading expert in the crowdfunding space, and they've got all the answers to all of your crowdfunding questions. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and get your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-A-N-D.com forward slash best ever. What's the best ever book you've read? Band of Brothers, Stephen Ambrose. What did it teach you as it relates to real estate? Never give up. Best ever personal growth experience, and what did you learn from it? What I had just discussed with the company I, I worked for, trusting people, and I learned you can still trust people, but you always have to just make sure you're trusting but verifying. Trust but verify. Love it. What's the best ever deal you've done, Jeff? I flipped and bought a five-acre piece of property in North Scottsdale. I purchased it for 201000 and I sold it three months later for 325000 net profit. Whoa, will you say that again? I missed that. So I bought it for 201000 and in three months I sold it to an associate I knew. I mean, he was an architect and was going to develop it for 325000 net. Wow. That's the deal I've ever done. That's a good deal. But the deal took me to cultivate prior to buying it about nine months. Ah, the story behind the story. Thank you for sharing that. So what do you mean nine months? Help us give some context for that. So it was a transaction that had popped up and looked like it had a little bit of potential. Um, And I had a friend who was buying lots in the area and he kind of was talking to me about different opportunities up there. So I was looking. I saw it and it was pretty overpriced. So I put in a lowball offer to it. That lowball offer was originally rejected. But then they kind of came back and said, hey, would you entertain this? And I said, sure, that, that looks okay. So we went to escrow. And then I met with the city of Scottsdale, and I met with the municipality and spoke from, a, you know, GPS to, to water to everybody regarding sewer, everything. And just kind of at the end of the day, I realized that it just wasn't a good enough deal yet. And when we decided to back out because of the other, there were some other issues that were coming about regarding surveys and other things. Uh, we talked to them about the issues, and they said, okay, well, you know, it doesn't work for us at the time. But I knew that at that point, they were wanting to make a transaction happen. They had something they weren't telling us, 
And then so about two months later, we had, you know, just kept conversating and talking to them. They kind of came to us and said, hey, we have to sell by the end of the year because they had some form of tax issue that they wanted to realize is what they had said and said, make us an offer. So I made them an offer at uh, 195000 cash closed by the end of the year. We ended up negotiating and got it to 201000 So, And you sold it for how much? 325000 And did you do anything to it between the 201 or well, between the time you closed on it to when it was sold? We did a little bit regarding the survey and the lot splits, but very minor. Best ever project you're most excited about right now? You know, I wouldn't say a specific project, but I'm very excited for the market right now, being that we're back to what would I call a, a more normalized market and being in the more normalized market. We're able to you're able to find a property, find an asset, improve that asset, and sell it to a retail client, and have a realistic profit in there that, over the long term, I think can hold through longevity. You know, and we're kind of out of the market where there's a million people here in Phoenix, you know, buying and just selling houses as quick and as fast as they can. It's actually getting back to more of a normalized market. So that's what I'm excited about. What's the best ever way you like to give back? I like to give back by by dealing with youth in my community. I coach youth sports, and I like to devote my time to uh, coaching kids and helping them uh, grow up the right way. And out of all the years you've been in real estate, what is the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Lending on 10 acres of land in Casa Grande. was <laughs> my biggest mistake. I lent on, on 10 acres um, I can't remember the exact dollar amount, but it was a pretty high valuation. You know, this was during the middle of the boom period, back in the middle 2000s. Property appraised, you know, somewhere in the 10000 an acre range. I lent, I think, 5000 an acre, and then I sold it for about 1000 an acre years later. Oh, my. That was my worst transaction I've ever done. <laughs> and we'll never do again. No, clearly, no. Well, you can't afford to if you do it over and over again, right? No, you cannot. <laughs> I'm not made of money. Eventually, the numbers catch up to you. That's yeah. right. <laughs> what is the the best ever place to reach you? My cell phone. You want to give your digits? 480-688-8686. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Jeff. This has been just a, it's been a fun conversation, talking hard money and lending and flips and some of the takeaways for me one is the sales costs or the closing sales costs you estimate 10 percent, and you've got two percent to commission three percent to sales concessions which is interesting that you're already anticipating concessions through the fha loans and then um, the rest fall under the remaining five percent fall under you know miscellaneous things like home warranty title and escrow operation of taxes title company fee things like that well just to clarify that though for you joe I estimate 2% realtor fees to my realtor being the seller realtor, but a buyer is going to have 3%. So there's, I always estimate for 5% in realtor fees and 3% for seller concessions. And then you have the additional 2%, which are kind of the minor offense. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. And then you, you're talking about hard money and, and what you look for uh, as far as 65% loan to value. So loaning 65K on a $100,000 property, for example and the debt ratio, 43%. 
So specifically an example, if they bring in a thousand dollars, then the house and all the other expenses, plus any other liabilities that you'll loan, what, $430 up to 430. It can't be more than $430 in that example, right? In payment. Correct. If you're talking about payment, correct. And then, you know, the best advice, you know, talking about go with your gut and be careful of people who speak in absolutes. I completely agree. And we talked about that and uh, your best ever deal. I think it's interesting that you know, the, the flip, once you closed on it, was relatively quick. But I'm glad that you mentioned the nine months of preparation prior to that and going back and forth because there certainly is always a story behind the story of every deal. And I'm, I'm glad that you shared that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a lot of work, a lot of effort. So. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Jeff. And hope you have a wonderful day. And we'll talk to you soon. You too, Joe. Thanks a lot for having me. Take care.